0: So let me start by uh, saying to you people how much I love you. I was talking to my daughter-in-law in in the back and I said, there's just no way I'm gonna be able to talk to you without crying, so. (laughs) Interpret, if you would, please, I, I appreciate that. I wanna take a couple of minutes so you don't have to grab your Bible for a second. And I wanna talk to you uh, from the elders, specifically. I wanna ask you for patience and grace. One is because I I wanna say some things, and I have severe limitations in being clear or perfect in how I communicate, so if you would, be patient. I, had, I met a friend eight years ago right back there. He was new to the church and uh, I knew he was new because he was wearing a suit. <laughs> I go, you must not be from here. And he started to uh, explain his kind of journey to Gilbert. And it started with uh, my church let me down or something like that. Like things were confusing at the church I left and And the first thing I said to him was, well, if you make Gilbert your home, we'll let you down too. Not that it's on my agenda, but I'm a sinner. And every leader is. Yeah. So what I wanna do for the next few minutes is tell you where I've let you down, where we as leaders have let you down. Over the past five months, uh, Redemption Church has communicated through videos concerning the issue of racism. I don't have to tell you that that thing is a boiling cauldron of tension. The Videos have and uh, are hurting people and confusing many of you. It's made you ask questions, like serious questions about Redemption or Gilbert or where are we going, and um, so I wanted to take a few minutes to kind of... Be as direct as I can about all of that. If I back up to intentions, if I give you our heart, here's the heart. Our intentions have always been to love. Our intentions have always been to love God with everything we've got and to love our neighbor as ourself. You've heard that sermon preached a thousand times at Gilbert. And when the world starts coming apart at the seams over the issue of racism and we go to step into love, um, that was the intention. We have dear brothers and sisters who are African-American and a community of African-Americans around us who are hurting and broken and confused about what's going on in our world, and so the church runs with the heart of Christ to it, right? We try to put on the bowels of compassion. However, in trying to put on compassion um, unintentionally, we confuse and hurt many of you. So, first of all, let me just put this out there. We're sorry. Wherever we have clouded the, the water where you couldn't hear us or didn't hear us, where we've said things that were not accurate or whatever, uh, we're sorry. I understand, I talk to friends, man, I see your faces. I walk through the room, I go, oh yeah. And you're sitting every time where you sit, you know? I can predict you. And I see you and I see the burden on you and I watch how you are talking about like family now, DNA family coming apart because of things that were said, tensions that are created. And I am crushed in my soul. I want you to know that we know that and we own that. Personally, just for me, now I'm not talking for the elders, but I feel like I've personally failed many of you. In the last five months, I've had, it feels like, hundreds of hours of conversations with people who are confused and looking for answers, and I spent all of that time trying to convince people what we meant, and I didn't listen. I was so desperately trying for you to get our hearts that I ended up not caring for yours. So for that... I am profoundly sorry. I know you're good people, so I know you'll forgive me. However, I need to say that. When you asked the elders or me in a conversation, specifically some words or phrases that were used in some of that communication, do you really believe that? Is that really what you think? Do you believe that we are all indifferent at best when it comes to the issue of racism and brokenness in the world? Do you really believe that there's a sin and a sickness of racism in us? Do you really believe that in the best of circumstances we're complicit? Those are the phrases that I was hearing. So let me just tell you, no, we do not believe that. Because here's what I know, I know too much. I know you, and then even if I don't know you, love compels me to believe the best. First Corinthians 7, 13 says, love believes all things. And we left you feeling as if somehow that wasn't true. I know this, and that's probably just a clarifying statement. I know this, that our body is capable of any sin, however, and it's sneaky, but I will tell you this, I know we're capable of any sin for one reason, because I'm here, and I'm capable of every sin, even if it's just me. But do I think those words describe you? Do our elders? No. I've watched how over the decades you have given and served the poor and the oppressed in a hundred different ways. From Mexico to downtown Phoenix to Chandler to Ethiopia to Alaska to around the world, even to other congregations with redemption, you give and you give and you give, and I know that. So in our efforts to care for the hurts in our church and our country, we left you feeling judged, and that was wrong, and we are sorry. There is another part of where this finds us, it is the questions and concerns about the direction of our church. Questions like, uh, do you ascribe to critical theory or critical race theory or Marxism or Black Lives Matter? And I think, to be honest with you, those are good and fair questions, and I will do my best to offer very, very, very brief, quick answers. Now, I will suggest to you, just for sympathy's sake, not that I need any, but I feel like the task was land on the moon, Tim and I have a lawn chair with balloons attached to it. (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to make it. So, um, I understand what I don't understand, but I'm just going to be blunt about some of those questions, and I hope you let there be some room in the discussion. Do we ascribe to critical race theory or critical theory? No. And let me define what I mean by that, because I know there's minutia and detail to that. I believe the Bible tells me that the world without God can find the hurt. In fact, I believe the Bible says without God, all man can do is hurt themselves and hurt other people. The fact that the world can go, ouch, I get it. But they got no shot in finding an answer without God. So, they can find the hurt, but they can't find the healing Critical theory, critical race theory, Marxism for that matter, are attempts to assess, describe, and solve the problem without God. And to be honest with you, the scriptures are pretty plain. To natural man, God's answers, God's conclusions are foolishness to those who are perishing. But we know too much, don't we? The problem of injustice and and oppression well that's real that's the effects of sin but if you try to go after the effects of sin without God you end up in our world and so we do not ascribe to critical theory critical race theory Marxism those aren't answers critical theory is wrong on a bunch of levels but just the basic levels of our confession it's wrong about humanity because the Bible says you are created by God in the image of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that is, the, that is the narrative about how we are and how we should see ourselves. But critical theory wants to split things into categories. Sexuality or religion or poor or rich or color, right? It just does that. And we know too much about what the Bible says to buy into their description of humanity. It is not identity. It is our image in God. Critical theory gets sin wrong. Because critical theory says sin begins and ends with oppression. And you know it goes way deeper than that. Oppression is a sin. But there's all sorts of sins. Like the way someone who feels oppressed would react, rightfully so, because of it. There's anger. There's jealousy. There's fear. There's violence. There's indifference. There's I don't care. I mean, you could just make a list as long as your arm of the sin. Sin is robust biblically. It affects every fiber of every piece of you and every conclusion you make. And so we fight for the truth. We fight for the Bible as it describes us and the problem. And we don't wiggle. I'm not judging the world trying to find hope without God. That's all they've got. But we don't ascribe to that. Critical theory gets salvation wrong because critical theory just says salvation is liberation. That's all it is. But we know too much. Not because we're smart, because the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. We confess our faith in Christ alone by grace alone through faith alone. That's all we've ever said. People find real peace, real joy, real reconciliation in Jesus plus nothing. Let me answer one more question, maybe two more. Do we support Black Lives Matter? Just to be clear, no to the organization. Are you hearing? We've said this before from the pulpit, but I'll say it again. No to the organization. The phrase, however, Black Lives Matter is a phrase that should be easy to affirm. Because if you don't affirm that, what do you have? That they don't? Black lives do matter. And it's also a biblical truth that those who are marginalized or dismissed, who suffer injustice, win the attention of God and therefore the affections of God's people. You understand that. However, black lives matter as a phrase also represents an organization with a worldview that isn't biblical, it isn't Christian, or good for the flourishing of people. Hence why the reaction is anarchy, defund police, broad-brush accusations against people groups. It just doesn't work that way. It is, again, an example of man's attempt to see the problem, talk about the problem, and solve the problem without God. So, black lives do really matter, but the organization, we do not affirm, we do not support that. Let me finish with this. It's kind of the like when you get all done with the confusion that we've created or whatever, and you get down there and go, where are we going? Who are we? Well, I hope this encourages your heart, but it will not surprise you. Um, Matthew 22, Jesus presents to us the greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with everything you've got. And the only way you can live that out is by loving your neighbor radically as yourself. We've said that, we're saying that, and we will go into that. Our future is somewhat like our past, although how God changes this channel and he opens up stories, the new stories we're not aware of, we run into with the love of Christ. Does that make sense? Where are we going? We're chasing hard after Christ. And everything he wants from us, every way he wants to shape us, and I'm just going to confess to you, if I'm an illustration to any of you, I've got a lot to grow in. And he is faithful. Amen. Amen. I need to pray. (laughs) Like really bad. So let's pray. God... I pray for us. For these people who are watching me, to the people who will be watching us on a video screen somewhere. When Jesus prayed, God, don't let them destroy each other. God, only you can rescue things, so I pray for that. I pray, God, that you would continue to shape us, and you are so faithful to make us uncomfortable in moments to do that. God, I I so desperately want blessings for these folks. And I'm so grateful for grace. We'd be wasted without it. Thank you. Amen. If you have a Bible, or if you didn't have the energy, we're going to try to do something from John. John chapter 3, the last portion of John 3, 22 through 36. If you get to your Bibles, we'll have it on the screen if you don't have yours. Let, let me just tell you what you're familiar with if you follow Christ. Every story of faith in this room has the same rhythm, basically. You were lost, and he found you. And then he starts to go to work on you, right? There has been the promise of God to save his children, and there's the promise of God to change his children. They're both at play, and that's our story. I remember 1980, I do. I remember what I was feeling when the lights came on. I do. I also can tell you what the last 40 years of my life have been like, really hard, In some ways, as God reveals, exposes, shows, you know, he does that. Our text today basically gives us a phrase to describe what that whole lifetime of conformity actually looks like. I'm going to tell you a phrase you're familiar with because you've read your Bibles, but I'm going to just kind of leverage that phrase. Here it is. I must decrease. Okay? Welcome to your Christian life. That phrase doesn't get a lot of love. It should be a tattoo on your arm or a bumper sticker on your car. I must decrease. It's the most sort of un-American phrase I can think of. Before we read the passage, let me just throw some stuff out there, some thoughts for you to simmer with. How good are you at decreasing? Give yourself a grade. Do you even try? Why does the thought of decreasing threaten us? I don't know. Let's read it. You'll see what I'm talking about. Verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This story, this narrative is fairly easy to follow, but I want you to notice the tension in it. It should be kind of the preeminent emotion that you see in this story. Verse 25 says, a discussion arose. The NIV translated, an argument arose. There's something more than just a chat. There's a concern, a major concern. Verse 26 kind of gives you a peek at how the level of concern is revealing itself and that John's disciples, going, they're all going to Jesus. So there's trouble. And here's the simple way to describe the trouble. John's ministry is getting outrun by Jesus' ministry. And John's followers were feeling jealous and felt threatened. Have you ever felt anything like that? Ever? Let me remind you that John is no slouch, okay? Um, You know this: the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Matthew, all present the beginning of John's ministry, and it's pretty powerful. Isaiah the prophet spoke of him. Behold, I send a messenger before your face, he'll prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness: prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. And John, this John, appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. John was clothed in camel hair and he ate honey and locusts. You know the story. And he's pointing to Jesus. It's impossible to exaggerate the ministry of John. And the presence of John. Think about it. His ministry is established by God and confirmed by Old Testament prophecy. It's demonstrated by passion, because that's what I get when I see John's story like passion, intentionality, commitment. It was successful. All of Jerusalem, all of Judea coming out to see him. Revival was breaking out because people were confessing their sins. It was confrontational. He'd stand and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it was bold. He would stand up to the elite of religion and the Jewish life. It was prophetic because it pointed to the coming of the Messiah. Are you getting it? John was no slouch. I have prayed personally my whole life, my whole converted life, God, show me revival. You know, I'm sort of idealistic. I want to see the biggest thing ever, you know. And... God, do that. Do something so radical that it's undeniable. And to this day, I haven't yet seen something personally like that. But I believe the description of what's going on with John's ministry is that in Israel. If there was internet in John's day, he'd be a superstar, like humanly speaking. We'd be following him. There'd be all sorts of likes and clicks and follows and blogs and stories, everything, pictures crazy man out in the wilderness, calling people to repent, and people are doing it, he'd be a superstar, and then you get verse 26, (laughs) Rabbi, look, the one you pointed to, everybody's going to him now, jealousy is the word. You can see there's emotional exaggeration because the text even starts out with people are going to John and people are going to Jesus, but John's people can only see it through one lens. Everyone's going there. And all they're talking about is decline. Their influence is going the other way. And the disciples are fired up. They don't want to lose what they had. They don't want to take the backseat to anybody. They're watching everything they had, everything they were doing, everything they were loving slip through their fingers. We can almost hear it, John, come on, John, Like you've done all the work, man, you've paid the price for this, you eat those bugs, you eat that honey, you wear the stupid clothes, you sacrifice, you're marginalized, you're out in the wilderness, like you've paid the price, you've done the work, you've seen the success, this isn't right, this isn't fair, it's not good. You ever felt that way? Ever? the loss of what you thought you were. You're successful, you're winning, you're in a zone, and then you're not. Do you feel competitive and troubled by other people's success? You don't have to tell me, I know. Does it ever feel like what just happened moment? Like, oh my gosh, how did we get here? The sun was on my shoulders, and now it's not. If you can't relate to that description, then all I say to you is, wait a minute. Because it's coming. Wherever you find yourself at the pinnacle, life will move you away from the pinnacle. It's inevitable for all people. And let me just let you in on a dirty little secret, by the way. All this stuff happens to pastors, too. Narcissism, jealousy, Competitiveness, measuring yourself against other people's successes, having to care so much about your reputation or your success, and having it be anchored to your sense of your worth. I know you think we should know better, but I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and we were in the discussion, like a real discussion, and uh, I was talking about me, not in a narcissistic way, but like I was just saying, I'm a bum, that's what I was trying to tell him. If I'm at my worst, I'm a bum. And uh, actually the word I used was I'm a puke. So I hope that is like, it's a Greek word for bum, I think, something like that. <laughs> and he didn't like it. In fact, he took five minutes to try to talk me out of my own assessment of my life. Like, you're not, you're this, you're this. It sounded like my mother trying to encourage me, you know? Like, um, <laughs> Let me just tell you, I think Christians have another problem beyond just carrying around sin. We have a self-awareness issue. And I don't mean to hurt your feelings, and I told you I love you. I dearly do, but I want you to know something. This is a biblical truth. We are all pukes. (laughs) Do you understand what I mean by that? The Bible uses other words like dead in your transgressions and sins, and even after conversion, we carry around this body of flesh that wars with the Spirit of God. It's not easy. There's chinks and problems in me that just sit dormant until somebody punches it and then it comes out in all of its worst form. In in my worst days, I'm not like Christ. But I've talked to you and I know you share some of those experiences. That's all of us. Maybe hopefully not all the time, but it's there. All it takes is for the wrong winds to change and the wrong things to happen and then ugly stuff comes out. John's disciples are experiencing this. They're the guys handing out the offering plate at the revival, and suddenly things have changed. So let's take a second to see if there's lessons to learn here. Things to consider when our influences and successes start to go the opposite direction of our desires, right? Let me give you a couple things. Here's the first thing. Do not forget, gifts, all gifts, come from heaven. Okay? Mark it down. This will change your life. Verse 27, it's pretty plain. In John's response to his disciples being bothered by Jesus' success, John says a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So don't forget, if someone is having greater success than you, don't forget it's God who gives it to them. I think we really need to be reminded of that a ton I hear from time to time, and just like let this be a Holy Spirit thing if it is, but I hear from time to time, us, believers, people who follow Christ forever, who watch the right sermons, who click on the right blogs, those people who say things that I don't think represents this truth. Because when you talk about your accomplishments, or you talk about your success, or your version of life, things are said like, I worked hard, I risked a lot. I had the great idea. I had the talent, and typically, it's in comparison to someone who doesn't have the level of success or or experience as you do. Can I just ask you to remember that even though that may be true from your perspective, like you did, you did, you did, from God's perspective, it doesn't work that way. First Corinthians chapter four, verse seven says this: "What do you have that God hasn't given you? What? Tell me." Say it loud. What do you have? Nothing. God gave each one of us everything that we have. You have nothing that you haven't been given. And then the text goes on to say, and if all you have is from God, why do you act as if you're so great and as though you have accomplished something on your own? Tell me why. Why would we ever boast about our greatness when we know God is the one who gives us the good things? Why would we boast? Let me just cut to the chase. Here's why. Pride is arrogance insecurity we have some version of our worth and our identity wrapped up in what we do and we're never going to let go of that it's not enough to be loved by god it's not enough to be forgiven of my sins i got to be known for this and i got to be that do you want to fight that yes three of us do then tell yourself every time you deposit your paycheck, this is a gift from God. Every time you're enjoying retirement, tell yourself this is a gift of God. Every time you close a deal or build a business, say it was a gift of God. Every time you have an idea that equals some kind of accomplishment or success, tell yourself that God gave you the mind to have an idea, to have the gift of success. Every time someone outruns you or outshines you, you just have to tell yourself, God gave them that. Gifts come from heaven. Remember this, that even when other people outperform you, when people super succeed over you, do better than you, when ministries are bigger than yours, remember, it's for the glory of God. Verses 28 to 29, it's John's response to the kind of concern from the disciples to go, whoa, this is, they're outrunning us, Jesus, uh, John. And he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have seen and, and, and been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In other words... John told his disciples that his efforts were focused on the glory of God revealed in the coming of Christ. I'm here to shine on him. It's about his glory, not mine. It's interesting, this illustration that John uses of the bridegroom, I found William Barclay's answer or at least description of it very helpful, watch this. The friend of the bridegroom had a unique place at at a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He presided at the feast. He provided or brought the bride and the bridegroom together. He had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. And when he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and let him in and went away rejoicing because the task had been completed. That's John. That's what I'm doing. I heard his voice. There he is. I'm out of the way. John was about the glory of God pointing to Christ, not himself. We don't have time to look at it, but there's another illustration of this in Numbers chapter 11. You might want to look at it sometime. Perhaps you remember it. It's the story when people of Israel um, are kind of doing their thing out in the wilderness. And the word comes back through a group of leaders to Moses that there's two guys named Ildad and me dad, who are prophesying. And even Joshua, they're all freaking out. I tell them to stop. Moses, you're the only one that can do this. And Moses' response was, I wish everybody could do that. Are you jealous? You get my point? Like when, when God shows up and he does above and beyond for others, it's about his glory. Do you understand? Even if it means you decrease. John knew that. Let me give you something else to remember. Remember we're called to live a lifetime of dying. I don't know how many of us, when we came to Christ or thought we were making that choice for Christ, actually considered what the lifetime of dying would be or even if we would want it. But the reality is you can't outrun that. Verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease, and I'm, I'm going to make a, a wager here that nobody in here has a problem with his increase. You just have a problem with your decrease. Why is that? You know why. It's not natural to love getting smaller. Our way is to get bigger, to grow our influence, to establish our reputation, to grow our accomplishments. And that is, by the way, all fine and good until that's not what's happening, and then we act like John's disciples. This isn't good. This isn't right. I'm going to tell something you know. Do you know why that's a problem for us? Because there's a whole bunch of garbage wrapped up in our worth that isn't real. You're not your education. As proud of that as you might ha- be, You are not your successes, as great as they might be. You're not your experiences. You're not your portfolio. You're not your career. And by the way, conversely, you're not your failures either. You're not your scars. You're not your days of plenty, and you're not your days of want. You're not God provides and God withholds. You're not that, right? It's very simple. In Christ, you are his treasured possession. You inherit the kingdom of God. You're blessed children. That's who you are. What you do, those are just platforms to point to him. It's not about that. We get it all jacked up in us. We walk around with our business cards and our clothing and our lifestyle, and we go, let me present to you who I am. And that's part of it, I suppose. But Christian brother and sister, here's what we fight for. It's not who I am. I was walking around, this is just, just popped in my head, this is gonna sound weird, but I was struggling on Thursday. And so I went to Arizona Mills, which I haven't been there in like 100 years. And I walked for two hours just in circles. I was on the phone most of the time, I was walking in circles. And you know, that, you know if, you, if you were to just describe the experience of people who have less or people who are poor or people who are trying to sort things out, and I thought to myself, this is what I am. I'm, I'm a mechanic who got the favor of God. That's all I am. I have nothing much more to offer than that. And I got to fight for that, to be honest with you. Because sometimes that's clear. Sometimes it gets foggy. You and I are Christ's. And the reality of this story of our life is he gives or he doesn't. He gives and He takes away. Sometimes it's sunny and sometimes it's rain, and it's okay because you belong to Him. The Christian life is about dying to ourselves. It's about this wonderfully painful journey of having our life and our plans get turned upside down. If I'm confessing, and maybe this is just kind of what it's like to be an American young man, I started life thinking it was about winning. That's what I thought, win. Win what you do, win your arguments, win your statements, just win. And then God had a different plan. He said, no, 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 you gotta lose, uh, all right? You gotta get smaller. I know I've used this illustration a ton, and I apologize if it's overused, but it's certainly what came to me when I was sitting down to think about this. It's my father, and this is where I need this, because it's really sad. My dad was never world famous. He's just a pastor of a small church. But he had his area, his level of influence. And he was a noble man. He is a noble man. Guess where God has him now? He's been in a hospital for nine months. Isolated. While they amputate one piece of his body after another. I talked to him on Thursday and they're taking more. His vision's gone, so he can't read, which was a joy of his life. He can't watch TV. He's, he can't move because he's physically too weak. He just lays there. They won't let him see visitors. Family and friends can't come. Nine months of this. I talked to him the other day. And every time I talk to him, it's the same experience. I say, Dad, how are you? And he'll say something like this. God is good. God is sovereign. And I can't wait to see him. That is a sermon you and I should preach all the time because it's that easy. It's that easy. He used to prep sermons and go to Bible college and hang out with pastors and think about vision and planning this and doing that. And now he lays on his back and waits for them to cut off another piece. And that's the way it's going to end. I must decrease. One more thing to remember and we're done. You've heard us say this before. Remember, it's not about you. It's about him. John says to his disciples, he must increase and I must decrease. And then he says, he who comes from above is above all. It's your perspective. It's not about you. The the son has come. He's above all. He is truth. He is reliable. And then that verse 36, he is life. He's eternal life to all who would believe. It's about Jesus, church. That's all it's ever been about. Let me encourage you with one last thing and then I'm gonna pray and I'll let you go. Embrace the de- decrease. Embrace it. Tell yourself that's where God is taking all of us. If you're going to love the trip, you've got to love what God's plans are. He will increase, and in that you will decrease, and he will be made known, and he will get glory, and he will reign forever, and you and I are loved. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for um, the timeliness of these words, but I will confess out loud, and maybe some of my brothers and sisters will join me, I'm so not wired to decrease. But I don't care, Father, do what you gotta do. Rearrange the pieces. Your timing is perfect Your intentions are good. And we confess together that we love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray this in Jesus, our Savior's precious name. Amen.